Where are my chili fans in the room? Chili, chili. Jason Linder, you make a good chili. Come on, let me see your hand up. Chili, chili. Oh, no, not chili. It's a restaurant. Oh, goodness. <laughs> no, like in, you know, spicy chili. Okay, okay. So, all right. Okay. I didn't really feel like So, what we're trying to decide, all right, is um, do we do our chili with beans or without beans? Okay, see, Michelle. Okay, so beans. Hands up. Oh, my gosh, Jared. I'm not even going to ask without beans. All right, without, uh, without beans. Without beans. All right, uh, you got hey, a couple. All um, I know is the Bible says that narrow is the way that leads <laughs> to salvation, so. Um, well, well, you lose regardless. Uh, well, whatever. You guys better hope I am able to keep you out of hell. Um, uh, we're always going to disagree, right? We're always going to have things that, that we don't see eye to eye on. I know we've got a lot of state and Carolina fans in here. Who, where are my state fans? Kim in here? Yeah, that was a mild version of Kim uh, uh, when you talk about state. How about Caroline? Any Carolina fans in here? Okay, so a few of us. Um, how about uh, barbecue, tomato base or vinegar base? Who's a tomato base barbecue? All right, how about vinegar base? All right, so pretty room is, uh, room is pretty, pretty split. Um, hopefully we do well on this one. Dogs versus cats, all right? Where are my dog people? All right, put your hands down. Cat people, I want you to stand up. <laughs> we've, got one, we've got one. Get up on the chair, Jill, because we can't see you. All right, so we've got a couple of cat people in the, in the room. Uh, but, but we're always going to disagree, right? There's always going to be things that, that we just don't see eye to eye on. And the majority of those things are, are we're not that passionate about. They're not that significant. Like I, uh, for me, I, I put up my Christmas tree before, uh, before Thanksgiving. And some of you are like, no, it can't happen till after Thanksgiving. And we can see that differently, but that's not really something that we're going to like not have a friendship over anymore. But there are always going to be things in life that we do feel passionately about. Like most of the things are, are not going to be a big deal, but there are going to be some things that are significant. And so what happens when you feel passionately about something and you're convinced that you're right, but someone else sees it differently? And, and since the gospel has made it clear that, that we're family, and as we've walked through the book of Romans, we've seen this, this play out as Romans 1 through 11 was all about who we were and where we would be without Christ. And then now all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and he's changed us and he's made us family. God the Father calls us sons and daughters. And then now Romans 12 and on says, in light of all of these things that you've experienced, this is now how you live. This is how you respond to the gospel. And we talked about in Romans chapter 12 about serving one another. We talked about loving each other, even loving our enemies, things that are counter to our culture. We dug into Romans 13 last week about a civic duty, civic responsibilities, how we're to submit to the authorities above us and what that, what that looks like. And I know that created a lot of tension. I expected half of you to not come back this week, but, um, uh, but maybe you just weren't here and it's a whole new crew. But, but, I, but I know that that stuff creates tension for us, but we're called to live differently. And then when he gets into Romans 14, he says, okay, now how do you handle things with people who don't see them the, the way that you see them? And because we're family and we can't just discard the relationships, we've got to figure it out. And so he's going to introduce us to two things that are probably not a factor to many, if any of us in this room, but we're going to use as an opportunity to, to shine a light on maybe some things that, that are factors for us. And he gives us, some, uh, gives us some tools for how we can walk through this together. So we're going to read the first six verses of Romans 14. 
and then go back and look at those and the rest of the chapter as well. But I want you to see the, the first six verses together because I think, I think they're important to be read uh, collectively. Uh, Romans 14, verse 1. Accept other believers who are weak in faith. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. Now, this may be the most important verse in the Bible. I didn't write this. God did. But you see what it just said? A believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. So vegetarians, uh, put a whole bunch of other people in that category. I didn't say it. God said it. So, so there you have it. But he's talking about the, the Jewish diet. Verse 3, he says, Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn? In other words, you might see there is judge. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before, they eat, before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. So, he's, so he addresses two things that would have been controversial in the first century. Again, they're probably not for us, but the first one was what you eat. There were a couple of things going on here. Number one was the, the Jewish diet, the, the, the kosher diet. So that is something that the Jewish Christians in Rome, if you remember the Roman church was made up of Jewish Christians, but also Greeks and Romans, Gentile Christians. And so they've all come together with different backgrounds, trying to figure out a way to kind of make this thing work. And so for the Jews, they were hung up on what they had been taught and believed for 1,500 years. Like there are certain things that they were told were unclean things that they were told they couldn't eat. And in fairness to the Jews, who told them that they couldn't eat those things? Who made up those dietary rules? They didn't make it up. God told them. So for 1,500 years, the diet that they followed as a nation was in obedience to God. It wasn't just some random standard they made up and said, I think God will like us more if we don't eat bacon. They said, God said, this is clean. This is unclean. You can't eat pork. And so for 1,500 years, they followed that. Well, now of a sudden, things are changing. But for those Jewish Christians, this is a difficult thing to, to come to grips with. They were struggling with it. And then in addition to that, you had meat that was being offered to idols. And there were a lot of uh, idol worship in Rome. And so when a, a, an offering would be made to an idol, obviously the idols couldn't eat it. So then they would sell it in the markets at a discounted rate. And the Jewish Christians were struggling with that because from their, in their perspective, and some of the Roman Christians as well, from their perspective, it was like, well, it's guilt by association. If you eat meat that was offered as an act of worship to an idol, then you've engaged in the act of worshiping that idol. And so it created some tension about, about diet. And then the second thing was about, was about the day of the week that was considered holy. The Jews had always been taught for 1,500 years. They'd observed that the, the Sabbath day, the day that was to be kept as holy, was sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. And again, they didn't just randomly and arbitrarily pick a date. God, remember the Ten Commandments, the things that Moses slammed to the ground when he came off the mountain and saw the people worshiping the idol? Like the things that God wrote with his own hand up on the mountain, one of them said, keep the Sabbath day holy. They didn't make it up. They were simply following what God had instructed. 
And again, things are changing, but 1,500 years of tradition for them, and they didn't have access to the apostles' teaching like we do today. And so for them, this was all brand new. And so it was going to take time to grow in this freedom that they had in Christ. But for many of the Roman Christians, it was like, what's the big deal? Like they didn't really even know this was a thing until all of a sudden the Jewish Christians were talking about it. For them, it's like, well, what's the big deal? We, we eat everything. Like, man, once you guys experience uh, bacon, you're never going to want to go back. Like if bacon's wrong, you won't want to be right. And so they, they present this to him and say like, guys, like this should not be an issue. And so Paul comes along and, and begins to address it. As I said before, we're probably not disputing over that. I don't know. We may tease each other about diet, but I don't think that anybody is drawing a line in the sand about diet. I don't think anybody's drawing a line in the sand about what day of the week may be holier than, than the rest of the days. But for us today, what are things that we feel passionately about, things that, that have created division within the church community, with, within our relationships? Because when we feel passionate about something and when we're convinced we're right and someone sees it differently than us, it becomes very difficult for us to just continue to go along. Think about what we talked about last week. We talked about politics. That's created more division in the church than, than maybe anything. Satan has used that as a wedge to just completely separate and divide, divide us. Some of the things that, that come out, out as a result of that, like things like, uh, like the Second Amendment. Um, now, full disclosure, right up front, I have two guns, one and two. Um, actually, I have three. I have Jen. Jen's a gun that just talks. Um, uh, but but I'm a, I have my concealed carry permit. I own a couple of, of weapons. But am I willing to allow that to completely drive a wedge relationally with people that may see it differently than I do? I mean, how about what, what happened over the last two years with COVID? And how much did that reveal or, or create fractures in our relationships? There are people who are following Jesus, but they're not following Jesus together. They don't even speak to each other anymore because of strong disagreements about how COVID should be handled, right? Should we gather? Should we stay home? Uh, should we wear masks or no masks? Should we get the shot or should we not get the shot? And, and all of these things that, that, have, that have created division. You could go into, uh, into other topics too, like alcohol. There are some Christians who believe that alcohol is something that can be consumed in moderation. And then there are some Christians who believe that you should never have alcohol at all. And, the, and the, the tricky part of this conversation is you can find verses in the Bible that would justify both ends of that argument. You go to the book of Proverbs, you'll read some things that Solomon said and be like, man, we probably shouldn't touch the stuff at all. And then you got Jesus over here his, his miracle to show up on the scene is like, I'm going to turn water into wine. And Jesus would have drank wine. Paul told Timothy for uh, an intestinal issue he had. He said, take wine for your stomach's sake. And so you can see all of these things. You go, man, there, 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 there are differing opinions. And Paul, and he's talking about these two things in the broader picture of where you and I live is, is, is we've got to learn to be able to, to, to continue to navigate relationally with people that we may not see eye to eye on things that I would consider non-essential. Like you've got essentials. You, you, you've got things like the person and work of Jesus, things that center around that. The early church gathered around one belief. That was that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and he rose from the dead. You believe in that, the resurrection of Jesus, you are a part of, of, this, of this church. So that's the essential. Those are the things that, you know, those are the, the line in the sand. We, we've got to agree on this. And then there are some important things that Scripture has taught us clearly on, and we walk in obedience. 
But then you've got non-essentials. And I think non-essentials is where we spend the majority of our time disputing and arguing. And what the, the problem for a lot of us is we want to move our non-essentials into the essentials category. Because it's important to me, because it's significant to me, I want to make this what is non-essential, and I all of a sudden want to make it an essential thing. And we could come up with our list. I mean, we could talk about, about doctrinal topics that are debated, things like the, the, the calendar of end times. I've met with people before, and the first question they ask me is, it's important to me to know what your position is on the end times calendar. I'm like, well, this will be a really quick coffee because we don't have one, right? Like, the rapture of the church may happen before the tribulation. It may have happen after. It really doesn't matter because the mission of Jesus is bigger than all of that, right? Whether, whether uh, gifts like speaking in tongues and miracles are still for today. Like, we can have differing opinions on that. We, can, we, can, we don't have to see eye to eye on those things. But we've got to learn to recognize the non-essentials and leave the non-essentials in the non-essentials category. And the only lines in the sand we're going to draw are things that center around the person and work of Jesus, those essential things to become a part of the family of, of, of God. And so how do we function in the realm of those non-essentials? That's what he's talking about here, and that's what he gives us some, some insight on. In verse number one, we're going to read it again. He says, accept other believers who are weak in the faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. First thing he tells us to do is he says, you've got to accept one another. And when he says one another who are weak in the faith, it's not derogatory, it's comparison, right? He's comparing two, two groups of people as it pertains to faith. Uh, I was, last week I went to, to dinner with uh, two guys who are 6'5", and then JJ, my son, who is now 6'2". I would not consider myself a short person. I felt very short waiting for a table. Like I was the guy standing on my tippy toes. I was the guy encouraging them to sit down while we wait. And, and, and I, I definitely felt like, man, I don't think I'm a short guy, but I feel kind of short in this setting. And so it all depends on what you're comparing yourself against. And so Paul is comparing them. When he talks about being weak in the faith, he's talking about their understanding of the gospel. And again, you've got to take it into consideration for the Jews, they're unlearning 1,500 years of things that they followed that God instituted. And so there's some grace as they grow in their understanding of the gospel. And so Paul is saying, I want you to, to be strengthened in, uh, in your understanding of the gospel. And those of you that are already further along, extend grace and have patience with those who may not be there quite yet. And he says, we've got to accept one another. The word accept means to, to welcome in. You know, human nature is to distance ourselves from each other, to avoid each other. But the gospel has taught us that we don't run from one another. We run towards each other. We fight for relationships rather than discarding them. He says, we're to, we're to accept one another. We're to, to welcome each other and welcome each other into our lives, welcome each other into our homes, welcome each other to a seat at, at our tables. You know, my kids hear me say often that no matter what they do, no matter where they go, no matter what choices they make, even choices that may grieve me, my kids know without question they will always have a place in my house. They will always have a seat at my table. And I think as parents, we get that, right? Like, like, like we may not love all the choices they make, but when it comes time for a meal, you have a seat at my table. And as parents, we understand that because they're family, right? Well, the gospel makes us family. So why wouldn't every other relationship be seen the same way? That no matter what you think, no matter what you say, 
no matter what choices you make that I may not necessarily agree with, there is always a seat at this table for you. Now, I think part of the struggle for us is we confuse or we try to link acceptance with approval, right? That, that to accept someone and to welcome them to my table means I approve of everything that they do. That's not, that's not how Jesus operated in the Gospels. Remember the woman caught in adultery? What did Jesus say to her? He said, go and sin no more. He said, I accept you, but go and be changed. Go and be different. Jesus didn't say, oh, like, it, it, it's cool, like, adultery, no big deal. Like, you love him, and, you know, I, you think he's your soulmate. It doesn't really matter about what's right and wrong. I, you know, you're at my table, so that means not only do I accept you, but that means I approve of you. No. There was 100% acceptance, but there was also an expectation that she would go, and she would be better, and she would be changed. And I think we want to marry the two. We want to make acceptance and approval the same thing. And when you do that, it becomes very difficult to, to sift through these, these things that, that we disagree on because we think that welcoming someone to my table is saying that I agree with everything that they're saying, and that's not, that's not, that's not the case. He says we accept one another. We welcome each other in. And then he says don't, don't argue about it either. Now, I'm an Enneagram 8, so this is a, a struggle for me. Um, I, there are two ways to see anything. There's my way and the wrong way. And so I, when, I'm, when I'm talking to someone and I know we disagree about something, it is very, very difficult for me to keep my opinion to myself. It's very difficult for me to, to, not, to not say, like, man, that's, the, that's just such an ignorant perspective that you have. On, like, it's, it's sort of, because I'm like, I can't, there, honestly, there are things where I'm like, I cannot believe that anyone would see it any other way. And so he says, don't argue about it. But the cool thing is he doesn't say don't talk about it. Because there's a difference between a discussion and a debate. There's a difference between a conversation to seek understanding and an argument to just prove your point. And so he says, don't argue, but he doesn't say, don't discuss. That, that happens in the context of relationship and in community. I have grown from many conversations I've had with people who see things differently than me. And when the Holy Spirit is able to uh, to, to take control of, of my mind and, and my words. I find these settings that I'm in where I all of a sudden have this moment where I'm like, you need to stop trying to enlighten them and you just need to start listening. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit will show me things through what they say and my perspective on things will shift just simply by living out these blessed rhythms in the lives of, of other people just by simply listening. Second thing he tells us to do is he says to, to not judge each other. Judging for many of us just comes easily. And it's not limited to the church community. It's just part of the human condition. Remember when Anna Nicole Smith married Howard Marshall, who's like 90 years old? Remember when they got married? How many of us were thinking, man, love is blind? <laughs> like what, what a beautiful picture of unconditional love. Who was thinking that? The, the cat lovers were probably thinking that. Um, what were we thinking? We were thinking gold digger. We were thinking she finally met a man who made more money than she could spend in her lifetime, right? When, when we see, when we see a, a young mom in a store with a kid that is just completely losing his mind, how many of us are thinking, oh man, I bet they had a rough day? No, we're, especially those older ones, we're thinking, oh, these millennial parents, like, man, just let the kids do whatever they want. And we don't take any time to consider what may have happened before they got in the store we don't take any time to consider the fact that that mom may have said no, and the reason that kid is freaking out is because the mom is actually standing her ground and not letting him win, right? And so we just cast these judgments on each other. 
And Paul talks about judging in verse 4. He says, who are you to condemn or judge someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will, they will stand and receive his approval. The, the word judge means to pass a sentence uh, or to form a mental opinion. So it's basically to condemn someone with your words or in your mind for an action word or lifestyle we disapprove of. See, judging is more than what we say. Judging each other is in the way we view each other. Like, I don't have to say it out loud. It's just the way I think about you in my mind. And he says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Whose servants are we? We're, we're all servants of who? We're servants of God. God is the one that is going to judge. When you look at what judging each other does in relationships, whether it's in your marriage or within like this community, judging each other creates resentment. Judging each other actually fosters an environment of hypocrisy. Because I'm afraid to be myself, so I pretend to be something I'm not simply to avoid being judged. It drums up all of these, all of the, all of these feelings of, uh, of insecurity when it comes to our relationships. All these things that don't reflect the gospel. Paul says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? In verse 10, he says, so why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. We will, we will, there, there are two judgments in eternity. One is the, the great white throne judgment. That's the conversation about, did you put your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus? The other judgment is the judgment seat of Christ where we will stand before Jesus and we will give an account for how we lived our lives. He says, we don't have to worry about being the judge because there is a judge one day that is going to bring to light everything we've ever done, whether it's good or bad. And, and so it, it can be encouraging to know that you're going to stand before, I don't, I don't have to convince you because you're going to stand before God and you're going to have to give an account to him. That, ex, that part excites me until I think about the reality that I'm going to stand there too. And it, then it becomes a little bit sobering, doesn't it? Where it's like all of a sudden, all, all, of, all of your dirty laundry being aired out, like I'm like, get the popcorn, I can't wait to watch. And then when I get up there, I'm like, hey, uh, let's go ahead and shut this down. Like, I don't want everyone to see all of my stuff. But it says that in eternity, we are going to stand before Jesus and we're going to be judged. And all of the things that we did to bring honor and glory to Jesus are going to be crowns that we get to cast at his feet. And all of the things that we did for any other reason, to impress someone for our own selfish ambition, out of vengeance, all of those things are going to be revealed for what they are. And the scripture says it's going to be like wood, hay, and stubble, and it's literally just going to be burnt up because the reality is we got the reward for it here. We're going to be judged. We're going to give an account for how we lived this life. And while we're judging each other, we've got to keep in mind that one day we too are going to be judged. And then the third thing that he talks about in this, in this passage is about loving each other more than we love our liberty or our, our freedom, that, as he talked about in Christ. In verse 14, he says, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat, 
But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. Right? Well, like we, we've got to stop projecting our standards on everybody else. Just because it's wrong for you doesn't mean it's wrong for someone else. Just because it's right for you doesn't mean it's right for somebody else. Again, we're talking about the non-essential category. He says in verse 15, and if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. Don't let these petty conflicts, these petty differences that we, that we make significant issues out of, don't let those things ruin someone for whom Christ has died. You know, Jesus said that the entire law and the prophets hinges on two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Christ-like love is taught in Scripture as a willful, selfless decision to act, to show good to those around us, regardless of how we feel and regardless of how they act. John Stott said this. He said, did Christ, speaking of your brother, did Christ love him enough to die for him? And shall we not love him enough to refrain from wounding his conscience? Like this is an area in my life where the Holy Spirit is just shining a bright light. Because there are times in my life, more times than than I even want to admit, where I care more about being right than I do about the relationship. That I care more about being right than, than, than how I am right. Do we love each other more than we love our liberty and our freedom? Do we value each other? Do we value relationships more than we value our need to be right? And this is important in this passage because Paul just said he was right. Look at what he said in verse 14. He said, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus. Does it get any higher than that? Like if you can play the Jesus card, you just win. He's like, I'm convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that I am right, that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. He says, this is what I know is right. And then in Colossians, he talks about that no no day is sacred. Every day belongs to the Lord. So he says, like, like, this is what I believe. This is what I I believe is true. But this is a non-essential thing. Like, you don't have to agree. He said, just don't project your perspective on everybody else and try to make everybody else fall in line with what you you think is right. So Paul said, I believe I'm right. But he also says and models for us that a defining characteristic of a mature follower of Jesus is a humble willingness to elevate others and consider what they may be passionate about as well. You see, we've got to come to grips with reality as followers of Jesus, that our freedom in Christ is not a license to trample somebody else's conscience. Our freedom in Christ doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to care for and respect someone who may not feel the same liberty and freedom that we do. And you gotta keep in mind too, that when we were the weaker brother, it was Jesus who lowered himself to serve us. If anyone had the moral high ground, it was Jesus. But instead, he lowered himself. And in chapter 15, verse 3, it says, Jesus came into this world and he didn't even live for himself. He lived for others. As I said, this is something that the Holy Spirit has been really uh, impressing on my heart. Thought through different times in my life where maybe I've gotten this right and times in my life where 
I've gotten it wrong probably more often than not. It's the, it's the latter. But one of the, one of the instances is, is with, my, uh, with my parents. So I grew up in a traditional uh, background, and especially going to church, Sunday morning was uh, you wear your best. You wear, you know, suit and tie. And I remember talking to my mom one time about it, and um, obviously I don't feel that way anymore. Um, but uh, my mom said to me, she said, well, if you were going to meet the king, you, wouldn't you be so honored that you would want to give him your best, including how you dress? And I'm not saying that perspective's wrong. Obviously, I don't see it that way. But I said to her, my perspective is I am going to see the king, but the king just happens to be my dad. And so, it's, so, it's a, so it's a, for me, it's a, a pretty significant shift in, in, the, in the perspective of, of how we see and how we view it. Not only that, but there's the whole, like, we are the temple. We don't go to church. Like, the spirit of Jesus is living in us. So unless we're going to wear a suit and tie to bed, then, you know, we're in this presence all the time. So, like, but, 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 what, I, but what I had to learn and what I had to, to realize was I want to honor my parents. And I love my parents more than I love my need to be right. And so when I go visit them, I wear a tie. <laughs> I'll have pictures next weekend. I wear a tie. Um, the top button's always unbuttoned, at least. Um, I sing out of the hymn book. I could do all those things because the relationship matters more than the need to be right. We've got to love each other more than we love our need to be, our need to be right and more than we love our freedom. And then the last thing he talks about is unity. We've got to fight for unity. If we're going to fight about and for anything, let's make sure we're fighting about and for something that in eternity really matters. And unity is the thing. Jesus, when he prayed over the disciples, his last prayer over them was a prayer for unity, that they would be one. Um, In verse 17, Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and others will approve of you too. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Like, just look at, look at what he just said. Have you ever met someone, and you're like, man, I don't want to be around them. They're too peaceful. <laughs> ever met someone, and you're like, man, they're, they're joy. I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. Like, their goodness to me and others, that's just toxic. Like, I, like keep me, have you ever, no one's ever said that about anybody that, that exhibits that, right? He says, live this type of kingdom-focused life, and you will have God's approval, but you'll also have the eye and the acknowledgement, and even people around you will look with, with, even at times from an outsider's perspective, a level of envy of like, man, how can you have peace in this circumstance? How can you, have, how can you continue to have joy with all that's spinning around us? And then he says in verse 19, so then let us aim for harmony or unity in the church and try to build each other up. Instead of tearing each other down, what if we put that same effort into trying to build each other up? Because that's what the kingdom of God does. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Then in verse 20, he says, don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but what is wrong but what is wrong to, uh, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. 
about this? Don't tear apart the work of God over how you vote. Don't tear apart the work of God over how someone else parents their children. Don't tear apart the work of God over whether or not someone believes what you believe about the end times or, or, or whatever it is, whatever, whatever our list could be. See, we don't, we don't have to be alike. We don't have to agree on everything. To be honest with you, this would be, as much as I want everyone to see and think the way I do, this would be pretty boring if everybody saw and thought and talked the way I did. The beauty of the gospel is that it brings us who are not alike, who have nothing in common, and it makes us family. In fact, that's what held the Roman church together with a lot of significant differences with people who previously wouldn't have even associated with each other. The one and only thing that could bring the Roman Christians and the Jewish Christians together, the only thing that could do that is the gospel. And if the only thing that can bring us together from diverse backgrounds, if the only thing that can bring us together is the gospel, then the only thing that can hold us together is the gospel. So we got, we got to fight against all of these things, all of these things that Satan is using. And, and, and for some of us, we think we're doing right and we're being used by the enemy to drive a wedge between the unity that, that God has come to bring and into uh, the unity that, that is, a, is a shadow, is an is a, uh, umbrella over us. In Colossians 2, it says, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. What unites us is the blood of Jesus. What unites us is the gospel. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united the Jews and the Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separates us. It's the gospel that brings us together. It's the blood of Jesus. I want you to bow your heads. We're going to do uh, close this part of the service out a little bit differently than we normally do. The thing that brings us together is the person and work of Jesus, Right? Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose again to pay for our sins, to reconcile us back to God, to make us family, to make us one, to, to bring unity, to be, to be our peace that passes all understanding, to be our peace that tears down the walls of, of, of separation. And so if the gospel is what unites us, what I want us to do in this portion of the service is I want us to have a visual reminder of that. So under your chairs, you've got a uh, thing of, for communion. It's juice, and I, I'm going to use the, term, the word bread very loosely. Uh, if you haven't had it before, when you have it, you'll know why I'm using it loosely. Um, it's, probably, uh, it's probably keto, I'm sure. Um, but I want us to... I want us to collectively as a family, like this reminds us of, of what this whole thing is about, that, that, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is bigger than anything we might disagree over.
And when we take communion, we remember the body, the body that was broken so that we could have life. We remember the blood of Jesus that was shed to pay for our sins. So what we're going to do is, is uh, uh, Eric and the band, they're going to do uh, a song that we've never done before. I'm going to let him talk about it here in just a second. But over the course of this song, a lot of times we do this, we do it like together at the same time. But I just want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And at any point in the next several minutes between the song we're about to do, the one after that, at any point that you feel ready, I want you to go ahead and, and eat the bread and drink the cup and remind yourself of what unites us, of what brings us together. And if this is the only thing that can bring us together, this is the only thing that can hold us together, and this is the only thing worth fighting for. And so I'm going to pray, and then as you feel led, uh, just go ahead and take that remembering what unites us. So Jesus, uh, you are our King, you are our Savior, you've called us to be one, you've given us everything we need to live this life unified. So we honor your sacrifice, we remember your sacrifice. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit. Show us what is broken. Give us willing, humble hearts to see it and receive it. And then give us the courage and the strength to take the, step, the next step to say the next yes to becoming more like Jesus. Jesus, you are our Savior. And it's in your name because of your sacrifice because of what you've done that we are sons and daughters of adoption.